An excerpt from the diary of Pauline Parker, 1953. There are living amongst us two dutiful daughters of a man who possesses two beautiful daughters, the most glorious beings in creation. They'd be the pride and joy of any nation. You cannot know nor yet try to guess the sweet soothingness of their caress. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few. They are so rare. Compared with these two, every man is a fool. The world is most honored that they should deign to rule, and above us these goddesses reign on high. I worship the power of these lovely two, with that adoring love known to so few. Tis indeed a miracle one must feel that two such heavenly creatures are real. Both sets of eyes, though different far, hold many mysteries strange. Impassively they watch the race of man decay and change. Hatred burning bright in the brown eyes with enemies for fuel. Icy scorn glitters in the gray eyes, contemptuous and cruel. Why are men such fools that they will not realize the wisdom that is hidden behind those strange eyes? And these wonderful people are you and I. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would be dead. everyone had a restful 4th of July. Because mm, mm-hmm. I always think of restful and I think of 4th yeah, of right. July. Never, never anything crazy. It's like the most relaxing holiday. You're just on a float eating a popsicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we here at the Jersey Shore celebrated the day Will Smith freed us from our alien overlords with a dangerous storm blowing people down while they simultaneously watched lightning and fireworks. It was wild. It was the one of the craziest things I have ever seen in my life. Yeah. I want to know who the Viking was out on the barge in the bay while <laughs> lightning is all around him going, we should do this anyway. We, we got to get it. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was for sure just like, if they're going to do this, they better do it now. Yeah. It was an hour early too. Yeah. They were like clearing the beaches because it was raining and all of a sudden fireworks just like erupted in the sky next to giant lightning strikes in the bay. Yeah. It was wild. And you could still buy a funnel cake Mm -hmm. while ambulances are like screaming down the street, bowling over police barriers and nearly missing the huge metal carnival games that were basically kitty lightning rods at that point. For sure, for sure. I mean, they didn't let them on the rides anymore, but they were there. (laughs) Yeah, they were absolutely there. It was like such a disaster. (laughs) Everybody forgot all of the safety measures we learned 
in modern society. I don't know. Maybe they were like grounded by rubber. We might be maybe, fine. Maybe. The fireworks was insane, though. <laughs> that was the craziest thing I've it ever really seen. It really was. It really was. And guys, that really, that's real. That all happened to us. It was on the third, not the fourth. Yeah. But we had such a time. Wait, I, somebody posted on Facebook, like, they really should have postponed them. And I feel like a whole bunch of parents were just like, you know what, though? I didn't want to have to do the third again. Yeah. Like, because we did it on the third, our fireworks. Yep. Yeah. And they were like, we, it was a whole day already. If we had to, like, take our children somewhere again And for they're this, not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, I totally I get that. I'm so happy that they just threw off those fireworks. They were like, wild. we're done. We're good. We, we did celebrated. it. Bye. <laughs> That's it. You know, on the Facebook page, this was my favorite part. There was a comment from like several people that were like, you're bad at notifying people. We showed up on time and there were no fireworks. They were done. That's bullshit. On time. It was torrential downpouring. Yeah, that's what I said. Time. When on time happened, the storm was so insane that you couldn't stand on the beachfront. Yeah. They showed up in that and went, where's the fireworks? I'm furious. I hope they were trolling. <laughs> I really want to believe that, but yeah. like, they probably weren't. If anything, it would be like a lot of like pet parents who were just like, I didn't give my dog his like CBD oil in time. <laughs> he shat everywhere. Yeah. It was awful. <laughs> Either way, it was a real wild ride. Yeah. So as you can imagine, after that harrowing experience, we're both like a little windburned. For sure. A little irritated and soggy. <laughs> all in all, not really looking 100%. And you know me, I'm always looking for that new product to give me a little youthful radiance, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. nothing seems to be totally erasing that I'm tired from life, but also an apocalyptic fireworks disaster. Right. <laughs> that is, that's the look. It is. Yeah. I think that's always my look. Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. You know, <laughs> it's not awful, but it's chaotic mm, to be mm -hmm, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so instead of products, I think I'll turn back to the one thing I can always count on mm. a calming soap in some unfiltered validation. A hill worth dying on. I needed the soul this week. Yeah. Really did. Real country. Mm -hmm. I was pissed. <laughs> God bless America. <laughs> God bless America. You're feeling real patriotic. I was. Oh, God. I am. <laughs> I am patriotic. <laughs> and best of all, Leslie, our friends can give us that ingredient. Totally free of charge. Wait, what? How? <laughs> you were so what? confused how? this week. <laughs> but how and what? You must be asking yourself. All the questions. I know. Well, on it's, everything. it's validation. You, you're the one that answered that. Oh, okay. <laughs> and how? Well, I'll tell you. Okay. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention. Attention equals support. And support equals more and better content for you. I like that. Isn't that nice? Yeah. But if you just cannot wait for more We Would Be Dead in your life, don't worry. You don't have to. You can support us over on Patreon. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies which I really miss doing. I keep yeah. saying that. I, I have a movie. Do I you? To do, yeah. What is it? It's, um, it's called Fall Break. There's like a little, a little song too that goes with it that they wrote just for the movie. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. It's okay. 
I hope that we get to do more of those again soon because they they were really fun. Mm-hmm. So you also uh, will get some special mini-sodes, our weekly after show, Host Mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, an on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons. So come on over and be a part of the We Would Be Dead family. Yeah, we're lots of fun. We are fun and our fireworks are nuts. Mm-hmm. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. That's oh, a good one. I like that one. You can leave us a comment. We love to talk to you. Post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell that uh, that one kid you always did dangerous shit with when you were little. And now they're on Instagram acting like they didn't try to burn down a bunch of stuff in the woods when they were kids one time. Oh, wow. What's their name? Oh, God, I have a list. I know, same. Um, <laughs> I'm like, could be a lot of people. I know. <laughs> Let me go with Rich. I was going to say Randy. Right, okay. They're twins yeah. and they're really bad. Yeah. yeah. They burnt really down bad. the whole woods. Yeah, we don't we don't talk to them anymore. But now they're like totally fine <laughs> yeah. pillars of society. But Rich when they were kids, Randy. Jesus Christ. Hmm. Well, then your friends and Rich and Randy can become fiends and we can all hang out together. And that'll be fun, right? Yeah. So fun. This week, guys, we are talking about the 1954 Parker Hume murder case, better known as the inspiration for Peter Jackson's film Heavenly Creatures. Ooh. Stars a very young Kate Winslet. Um, and this is one of my pet cases because I discovered it when I was a lot younger and just like couldn't get enough information about it. Mm-hmm. I also saw this movie while I was involved in a very intense and toxic friendship. <laughs> so oh, okay. it, a lot of the themes hit home mm. pretty well. And I know it's delayed, but this is actually part uh, like the very last bit of our Pride Month coverage. Okay. Um, and you'll see why this week and then more explained next week. Because surprise, it's a two-parter! Oh, man. Yeah, when I really love a case, a lot of times it gets really long. Anyway, (laughs) I put it in the Pride Month category because the girls were presumed lesbians in the courtroom by not just the prosecution, but also the defense. Wow. And that fact played a major role in how the girls were perceived by the public and how the case was tried. But we have little way of knowing whether they were lesbians in real life or not because neither of them were allowed to speak on the stand. Both went on to ardently deny that. And so we probably should just take their word for it and have that be that. But there is so much more to explore than ambiguous sexuality in this case. Because in my opinion, that's the least interesting part of the whole thing. So I just wanted to give you guys a little preface. Anyway, I'm sure you've also noticed by now that we're, we've been like a little every other week as of mm-hmm. late. Writing and producing We Would Be Dead is incredibly time consuming. Yes. You guys don't see the behind the scenes part and you don't need to. It's crazy, but it can be tough to juggle when your team is super small. We don't have research assistants or social media teams or producers or publicists. It's, it's just us. We're just a throuple. Yeah, mm-hmm, that's all. <laughs> so bear with our slightly hectic schedule, you guys. We love you. We're not going anywhere. We've just been doing a lot of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're also going to work on some new and different stuff to throw in the mix. Maybe some interviews, maybe some guests. I have a couple of those in the queue. Maybe some submissions from you. Leslie was talking about a little outreach to the audience. Maybe that mm-hmm. could be fun. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's all on the table. There's nothing but possibilities. 
Is any of it going to happen? We don't know, but we're exploring it right now. So it's fun. So um, lastly, thanks to anyone who donated to the Trevor Project for our Pride Month fundraiser. Do we have a final tally? Yes, it was a 405. 405. You guys. Really holy good. cow, you mm-hmm. did that. Yes. You did that. The Trevor mm-hmm. Project gets a check for $405 mm-hmm. because you cared and you donated. Mm-hmm. And I'm so proud of our audience. You guys really showed up and we cannot thank you enough. Absolutely. So that is all in my way of prepping announcements for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, Holly, <gasps> I do. Yay! As of, uh, well, as of this week, I am officially in my third trimester of my pregnancy. (laughs) Oh my God, guys. We didn't talk about that for a long time. (laughs) Guys, I'm pregnant. I just found out. It's so wild. (laughs) I just found out. Do not lie to them like that. That's terrible. I went to the doctors and I was like, I'm having like a really weird stomach. (laughs) Monster feelings. It's just getting so big. What happened? Yeah. I was trying to go on a diet protocol and they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You got something growing in there. And yeah. I was just like, shit. Is it a watermelon? I yeah. did eat some seeds. <laughs> yeah, right. That's <laughs> all that magic school bus episode. <laughs> oh my God. Guys, we had, we had John edit so much stuff out. We did. For months. We did. <laughs> a lot of we heartburn. Were, I mean, also, I think we talked about midwives at one point and you were like, my team. And we were yeah, like, no. My midwife. No. And I'm like, wait. We can't. <laughs> Although that's my, that's my OBGYN is, is a midwife. So there you go. So I could talk about her. You sure, fine. You sure could. Anytime you feel the need She's to great. now. Yeah. <laughs> so guys, yeah, that's a big fun one. Send Leslie all the congratulations is, is, is yeah. in the world. I'm registered at babylist.com and Amazon. I am going to put kidding. up links if you want to send Leslie <laughs> no, something stop. special. No, stop. <laughs> People love you. They might want to. You never know. But yeah, I could not wait to share with you guys, but it was also fun keeping a little secret. <laughs> you did have like a little baby secret. Just a little baby. It was just me and the babes. And postmortem is from like the neckline up. <laughs> no one ever saw. Yeah. And I always had big tits, so it just yeah. didn't matter. Yeah, it's the same. So if you guys don't watch postmortem, you wouldn't know that. No, but if you do... Now you know. You get to see tits. You get to see big tits. Not like all of them. They're not <laughs> well, like I don't out. just put them out. Yeah, no, we don't do that. No. Although maybe we'd get more patrons if we did. I don't know. John is editing this. He's like, <laughs> I'm editing all of that out. <laughs> he is not. He's angry. like, I hate all of this. <laughs> Nonsense. All right. Well, that that was a really fun announcement. Oh, and and it's, it's with John, our editor. That's a baby <laughs> daddy. Gates, you guys didn't know so it's somebody else good no, yeah it's a relief thanks <laughs> I'm, I love that you had to say that that's the best part <laughs> FYI it's with the guy Leslie married and we talked all about that yeah it's just the case there might be new listeners <laughs> god willing there are some yeah out there in the world but anyway that's a fun one send your congratulations to Leslie nah I think we should have like a little zoom party Ooh. That would be fun. A little a little fiend baby shower. Yeah, we should do a photo shoot with like an alien baby or something. Oh, yeah. That'd I would love fun. to work that out. <laughs> we'll think about it. Okay. All right, guys. On with the show. For many years, out in the wide world, there were two women 
living two separate lives not far from one another. They were not ordinary lives, but neither were they sensational or scandalous. One lives out in the country in a small village. She wears useful clothing and cuts her wiry hair short. She does not wear makeup or color her hair. Over the years, it has gone gray. Her name is Hillary. She keeps horses and teaches riding to children. She spends long hours in the library voraciously reading. She does not entertain guests. She never married. She is devoutly Catholic and spends most of her days in prayer, occasionally taking breaks to paint haunting images of two beautiful women engulfed in flames. The other lives in a remote village on the coast. She wears silky blouses and statement necklaces. Her hair is stylishly cropped and colored red. Her name is Anne. She has a large and beautiful secluded home. She has two expensive cars parked in the driveway. The house has large sunny windows, ancient stonework, and is dripping with magical and abundant greenery. She writes novels set in the past about detectives. She has friends, addresses the public, and travels often, but has never married. These two women live 10 hours apart by train. They seem to have nothing whatsoever in common, and you'd be hard-pressed to imagine them in the same room, let alone the same bathtub or bed. And yet, the world we inhabit is an ever-changing place. One lifetime can contain many lives, if we're lucky. These two women once lived as completely different people in a completely different place. Their names were not Hillary Nathan and Anne Perry then, but Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. And together, they did a horrible, horrible thing. On the 22nd of June, 1954, in the village of Christchurch, New Zealand, Agnes Ritchie was serving tea. Agnes was the proprietress of the tea rooms at Victoria Park, a large recreation area with scenic trails and places for quiet reflection. So it's just like, like hiking trails. It's not like the kind of park where you have like a baseball field or something. It's just, just nature. Okay. Just to give everybody a, um, a mental picture. And mm-hmm. some of the trails are kind of remote. Because you want to be kind of in the woods when you're walking a trail, you know? Right. So just to give you, and some of them are a little harder of a hike. Some of them have like boards to help you get over ruts and rocks and stuff. We all know about a harsh hike in the woods. You're out in the wilderness. (laughs) Letting you guys know what the terrain was like. It had been a steady day for Agnes. Not busy, but there were customers to tend to and Agnes was kept busy. Just after 2.30 in the afternoon, a woman and two girls came in. The woman ordered tea and the girls ordered soft drinks and they all got some pastries. Nice. Yum. One of them ordered a flat soft drink. Mm. How do you even do that? Just stir it forever until it's flat? Yeah, I guess you could turn down the Or maybe it was, oh yeah, maybe it's like a soda fountain and you, Mm -hmm. okay. I wasn't even thinking of that. I was just baffled by it. Like she just wanted like. So she just like ordered a Pepsi. Yeah, she was like flat (laughs) Coke. Oh, all right. The trio was quiet and polite enough. And after they had paid their check, Agnes did not even notice them leaving. They paid. She was like, okay, guys. And then when she came back in, they were gone. So Agnes went about her day, clearing dishes, serving snacks and drinks, keeping warm when a chilly breeze would blow. Because remember, kids, Australia and New Zealand have winter when we have summer. So June isn't really that warm. 
people would have coats on and the like. Still, though, the day was sunny and pleasant enough, so going for a walk through the park was a nice way to pass the time. By 3.30, Agnes found herself involved in something that seemed to burst right out of a nightmare. The girls she had served tea to earlier were barreling back towards her, and they were covered in blood. According to her official report, quote, this is Agnes's police report, Mrs. Ritchie was serving ice cream to someone when the girls rushed to the bottom of the steps. The girls were very agitated, breathless, and gasping, both speaking together at the same time, and it was difficult to make out what they were saying. Now, it is important to distinguish they were not screaming. In a lot of pieces, places, people say they, were, they came screaming out of the woods. They didn't. They were just breathing heavily and talking a lot. Okay. Quote, as near as I can remember, the first thing said was, please can someone help us? Mummy has been hurt. The girl Parker said, it is mummy. She's been terribly hurt. I think she's dead. The girl Hume said, it's her mother. She's hurt. She's covered with blood. Can somebody help? I think something was said at that stage that the woman had slipped, but I'm not certain. The girl Hume was almost hysterical. The girl Parker was quieter and very white. They both had blood on their clothes but particularly on their hands. The girl Parker had blood splashed on her face. She sent for her husband. This is Agnes. Agnes sent for her husband, and she tried to find out where this event had happened, but both the girls were very upset. The girls said it happened in the bushes down the track, and they vaguely pointed. And Mrs. Ritchie walked over to try and see if anything was kind of like standing out to her. Mm -hmm. So they kind of pointed vaguely like, over there! And as I mentioned earlier, this is like woodsy. Over there isn't like clear to see. And clearly this woman couldn't like leave these girls right. or the whole business that she's in charge of. So she kind of looked but didn't see anything. Back to her statement. She knew there was a dangerous spot in that direction though, so she wasn't totally doubting them. Seeing nothing, she went back and questioned the girls. They said, quote, don't make us go down there again. She said, never mind, you don't need to go back. Mrs. Ritchie's husband, Kenneth Ritchie, arrived. He told his wife to send for an ambulance, then went down the track. The blood on the girls and their clothes worried her a great deal. Uh, yeah. Yeah, It sure. would. It also sounds so scary to, like, even go where the woman was. Mm -hmm. You're just like, what's in there? We have no idea. Exactly. Yeah. Plus, these girls are just covered in blood. Mm -hmm. Are they injured? Was there a fight? Is somebody else there? Do we know for sure that she fell? Why are they covered in blood? That's terrifying. Ugh. The girls, so this is back to her statement. The girls wanted to wash the blood off straight away. Oh, come on, man. Never a good idea. No. Mrs. Ritchie got hot water for them and both of them washed. Both wanted to go home, but particularly Juliet Hume. Um, and they also mention in the part that I took out because it's really long and rambly that, um, they had blood on their coats and they okay. took off their coats. Well, I mentioned before that it's chilly because mm -hmm. those are later enter into evidence because they okay. couldn't wash their coat at a tea room. Mm -hmm. Both asked to telephone their fathers. Agnes first phoned H. Reaper, but the line was engaged. And that is Pauline's father. She then phoned Dr. Hume and then made a cup of tea for the girls and sat with them as they drank their tea. Quote, I asked them how it happened, and the girl Hume said, oh, don't talk about it. The girl Parker said that they had been down the track and were returning when somehow her mother had slipped on a plank. 
She said her mother hit her head on a brick and her head kept bumping and banging as she fell. This is not a mountain, by the way. You're not going down anything. It's just a straight track. Like it's a hike, but it's straight. It's not like a hill. Right. So she was just like flailing on this thing. Yeah, like barrel rolling down a hiking trail. Yeah. Like a straight. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. just (laughs) you'd have to really try to do what they're saying she did, basically. The girl Hume kept saying, don't talk about it. I'll always remember hearing her head banging. Both girls remarked that it seemed like a dream and they would wake up soon. And odd remarks like that. The girl Parker remarked during the conversation, mommy, mommy, she's dead. I said she might not be hurt so badly. That's what Agnes said. And the girl Parker just looked at me. They said that after she fell, they tried to pick her up and carry her. So after she barrel rolled through rocks, they tried to carry her back to the tea house. But she was too heavy and they dropped her. The girl Parker said, perhaps we didn't do the right thing. Perhaps we shouldn't have tried to carry her. They both remarked several times that they wanted to go home. The girl Hume said several times, will my daddy be long? I wish he would hurry. The girl Parker was quiet and calm. And I thought she appeared to be dazed. The girl Hume was almost hysterical and appeared to be holding herself back. Dr. Hume arrived and took the girls away in his car. The police arrived shortly after that. About 4 p.m., I telephoned Mr. Reaper and he telephoned me at about 4.30 p.m. I told him what I knew and he arrived at Victoria Park later. So that's, that's quite a scene. That really is wild. Yeah. So Agnes wasn't able to see Whatever had happened, as I mentioned, as as far as she knew, there's like not far from where she is. There is a woman who might be gravely injured because these are girls and you can't always tell. Not not that they're girls, they're kids is what I Mm -hmm. meant. Or she could be dead on a hiking trail, like right over there. And judging from what these girls look like, it's a pretty bloody affair. Mm. So she calls her husband, as I mentioned, Kenneth, who is the groundskeeper at Victoria Park. So he knows all of the trails there. And he is going to go down and explore. So this is his official statement. Quote, after being summoned by his wife, he asked the girls where the accident had happened, but they seemed confused and couldn't tell him. He also asked them what had happened. And they said the mother had slipped and hit her head on a rock. It was a brick the first time, not a rock. The clothing of Juliet Hume was covered in blood. One hand of Pauline Parker was smothered in blood and her face was splattered with blood a lot of blood for watching someone take a fall. Mm -hmm. He took Pauline Parker through the gap in the stone wall at the plantation. So that's what they're calling this like estate type park that they're on. And asked her again where the accident had happened. She pointed vaguely down the road and Mr. Ritchie just kind of walked towards where she pointed. He was like, okay, I'll see what I can find. Mm. It's light out. It's not Mm -hmm. dark. So you're going to see something. Mr. Ritchie went about a quarter mile down the track with his assistant, Eric McElroy, and found the body of the woman. She was dead and on her back with her feet pointing up the hill. So I guess there's a little incline, but I've seen pictures of it. It's not the kind of hill you would fall down. Okay. Or just continuously roll. No, you you certainly wouldn't. Yeah. You'd have to put some effort into it. You really would. I mean, maybe she was rolling away from them. Maybe she was like, ah, barrel roll! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quote, her head was pretty well knocked about. There was blood all over the place and there was blood on the path. Kenneth observed a half brick and a lady's stocking at the scene as well and both were covered in blood. Quote, 
I went back to the tea rooms and telephoned the police. The ambulance arrived as I got to the top of the path. Kenneth observed that the girls were still agitated, and so he, quote, asked them to come into the sitting room, and so they did. The girl Hume said, I wish daddy would come. The ambulance driver and the police went down the track. Dr. Hume arrived, left his address with the ambulance driver, and took the accused away in his car. The path where the body was found was just clay, and there were no outcrops of rock anywhere nearby. That is key. There was no big sharp things to hit your head on. At weekends, the paths were used a lot by the public, but during the week, not so much. On a weekday, the spot where the body was found was secluded. Hmm. Okay, so all this is pretty curious. Yeah. The woman left dead on the path was 45-year-old Honora Mary Parker, Pauline's mother. And the authorities would soon discover that her injuries did not match this asinine story the girls had given at all, which probably is surprising to exactly no one. Just them. Yeah. We're like, what do you mean it doesn't match? I, she fell on so many rocks. I know there's no rocks, but there were so many rocks. Mm -hmm. It's weird, isn't it? According to Adam Abrams, a Parker Humes scholar of sorts, so this guy has a fascination with this case, which I totally understand. Mm -hmm. And he has painstakingly transcribed all of like the court, like the hearing documents and recordings, like everything from every court transcript he has put online. So this guy has read every inch of information about this case. Okay. So according to him, quote, Donald Walker was the first physician called to the scene, arriving shortly before 4 p.m. He observed that the victim's head was thrown back and lying downhill. There was no doubt about her being dead. There was a lower denture lying on the ground to the mm. victim's left alongside the jaw. Knocking your teeth out. Ooh. Wow. Like, a denture doesn't just, like, I mean, I don't know how the great they were back then, but, like, you don't fall and the teeth come right out of your head, usually. Mm -hmm. The stockings were muddy and smeared with blood. Her arms were mud and bloodstained. The eyes were closed but gave the impression that they had been blackened. There were severe gashes on the victim's head, and a great deal of blood had streamed from her head and flowed down the path and had congealed victim was almost completely exsanguinated. So bleeding from the head was massive and rapid. Wow. So yeah, a couple notes about that. One, like we've talked about this before, your head bleeds real fast, mm -hmm. like a lot. Head wounds are always like super bloody. Um, but also there is a possibility, it's not stated in any of the like medical examiner's documents. I guess they were just coroner's reports back then that they had severed her carotid artery. And this would also explain why there was so much blood on the girls. Because like, spoiler alert, she didn't just fall down. Oh, no. But yeah, because like if you hit an artery, it's going to spray. Right. And that's what um this doctor kind of thinks may have happened. Okay, that would make sense. Yeah, it made sense to me too. From the appearance of the body, Dr. Walker could not reconcile it with an accident. He was like, this is not, this is a murder. This is so very obviously a murder. Yeah. One shoe was off and personal articles were strewn nearby. Sergeant Robert Hope testified that there was a stream of blood 10 or 12 feet downhill from the head. Ooh, that's so much blood. Various objects were strewn about near the body. There was a half brick lying about 15 inches from the body. 
Sergeant Hope also found a woman's Lyle stocking on a bank. So it's like a nylon stocking, but like, you know, what we would look at as like thigh highs today. So it was just okay. one. And then in a shallow drain beside the bank, there was a large pool of blood. There's no way that much of a like bloody situation came from a fall. They're just, unless right. you fell from a great height. And even then, that's not what you would look like. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I am a very klutzy person, though. I so am I. To me. I don't know that I would barrel <laughs> roll down a path, but I don't know. If I did, it'd be a really impressive way to go out. <laughs> I'm choosing this! <laughs> this looks like a murder. And then they, like, find tape and they're like, nope, she just tripped. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> so back to the doctor's report. He said most major wounds were on the right side and the front of the head. Victim's right ear was badly split. Some reports indicate severe cosmetic damage to the face, obviously. Others that wounds left on the side of the head and face were less severe. Mouth was... This is gross. Mouth was blocked with vomit, possibly mm. indicating convulsions. Because head wounds... Yeah. Uh, or not even wounds, like getting your head like hit hard. Mm-hmm. So... It was then concluded that Mrs. Parker had very clearly been murdered with the use of a, quote, half brick knotted in woman's Lyle stockings. The brick was ejected by the force of the blows. So somebody was swinging the brick mm -hmm. inside the stocking. So you're getting like air, like a, like a yep. whipping motion. And mm -hmm. that's like way more force. At one point, the brick was ejected by the force of the blows. Mm -hmm. The victim's hair was found on the stockings. And the brick was probably used continuously afterwards, just in a hand by itself. Bloody stocking and brick recovered separately at scene near the body. So that means like parts of the brick came off too. Mm, okay. Brick is crumbly, but that's, you got to really hit it for that. A postmortem examination was carried out at Christchurch Hospital following the discovery. And this is what they found. Mrs. Parker's cause of death was shock associated with multiple injuries to the head and fractures to the skull. The lacerated wounds to her head were inflicted with a blunt force instrument wielded with considerable force. The skull fractures were crushing fractures. And this is very interesting because it indicates that the victim's head was immobilized on the ground when these blows occurred. So when he blows that fractured her skull, she was like, on the ground and she was being hit on the side of her head that's not touching the ground. Ooh. Exactly. So like it's crushing it against the ground. Mm. <sighs> Medical examiners also found bruises on her neck, which indicate the woman had been forcibly held by the throat. So this sounds like some of these injuries were done as she was held to the ground and her head was bashed in with a brick once it came out of the stocking. Right. Oh, gosh. That part is left out of everything. That's the first time I've read about this case for years, since like the early 90s when the Peter Jackson movie came out. And that is the first time I've read about that part. That's, oh. Yeah, it's really weird that they, they that's kept out. It's like just the thing in the stocking and then it was done. No, it's not. It kept going. Yeah, you would think they would include that part. That's brutal. And also it shows so much more intention. Yeah. So clearly this was not a fall or an accident. It was a violent and intentional crime. And the media like immediately got a hold of it and ate it up, obviously. These were not average girls with an average friendship. Slowly the details of their enmeshed lives began to spill forth from family members and classmates. 
and the things they said were all very strange. As the police spoke to their families, a story began to emerge, and it was unlike anything they had ever heard. And then the police found Pauline's diary. But before we get there, which I'm going to tell you right now is next week, the diary gets its whole thing because it's a lot. Mm. Let's go back to the beginning. Like all good fairy tale princesses, Pauline and Juliet came from very different worlds. According to the Journal of New England Studies, Honora Mary Parker, born in 1909, so that's the mom, that's our victim in this case, okay. emigrated from England to New Zealand in 1927 when she was 18 years old. And guys, she has a scandalous life. Ooh. Yeah. In New Zealand, she met Herbert Reaper at her workplace in, ooh, I'm never going to pronounce this wrong, Ratihi, I guess. Okay. Herbert was from Tasmania. Nice. What a fun detail that is. Yeah. And uh, he was 15 years older than Honora at this point in time. And she's 18. So this is like an adult. Right. (laughs) It still looks to me like a teenager and an adult. But, you know, it's legal. Or at least it's legal here. I don't know what their rules were there. At least he's like in his 30s, though. Yeah. But (laughs) wait for it. He was at the time married to a woman named Louise. Well, that's a problem. Yeah. And Louise was 13 years older than Herbert. Oh. Just age gaps. All right. Everywhere. So he's just planning for when Louise goes. (laughs) He's like, I made a mistake. Yeah. We're not on the same level. This was really hot 13 years earlier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But But now I don't like it as much. And Louise also had brought her own two sons into this marriage. They're not Herbert's. They're hers from like a previous relationship. So he's like, "Mm, I don't love it. And this is not an excuse for him. He shouldn't be doing that. That's an asshole move. But it it is clearly what happened. Yeah. So shortly after he meets Unless she like groomed him. Maybe she did. Yeah. We don't really know. I don't know. I don't I don't go back that far because there's so much information, you guys, but you're very right. Maybe she maybe she was the bad guy there. Yeah. We truly don't know. So after he meets Anara, they like sparks fly. Mm -hmm. They immediately start having an affair. Okay. And they get serious fast. So Herbert's like, I gotta ditch this woman. Yeah. He doesn't get divorced though. He just takes his new hot 18-year-old girlfriend and moves to Christchurch. Okay. Which That's is the place to go. Yeah. They're like, Christ and church makes us sound like we're doing everything right. Let's go. Yeah. If we are welcomed there. We are welcome anywhere. Yes. And we'll talk more about Christchurch next week. Okay. And this is just a town named yeah. Christchurch? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah I know. I, I like... My first exposure to the story, I was like, Christchurch? Are we talking about some more like religious? What? But no, it's just the name of the town. Okay. <laughs> it's an intense name for your town. Yeah. <laughs> so they move there and they just, when they get to Christchurch, they just operate as though they're married. They okay. never actually get married, but Honora changes her last name to Reaper. Mm-hmm. And Pauline lives her whole life as Pauline Reaper too, until her trial, wherein they find out that her parents were never married. Oh. That's when Parker hits everybody. That's when Honora turns, her last name goes to Parker and so does Pauline's. It's all very confusing. Yeah, but I mean, wouldn't that still be her dad? Like, wouldn't she? Yeah, but for whatever reason, they were like, well, you're unmarried mom. You get her name. Okay. Oh, like like a Jon Snow of Mm -hmm. sorts. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just to let you guys know, that's like a weird thing. that There's a lot of twists and turns to this story, which we will get to at some point, but I'm just going to plant seeds right now. Okay. And then they kind of settle down. Once they move to Christchurch, pretend that they're married and get a house. Mm-hmm. 
they just, they're just have a normal life. They're like, okay, we did all this weird shit, but we're normal now. It's fine. So they are like, they make friends, they get jobs, and they start having their own children. Okay. Their first child, a boy, had cardiac difficulties and sadly didn't make it. Yeah. Their second child, Wendy, was born in 1937. Cute name. Isn't that cute? Add it to the list. Yeah. It's a little magical. That's a magical little name. These are things I don't have to edit out now. No, you can just freely say everything. Yeah. Guys, tell Leslie what she should name her baby because I'm yeah. very interested to say to hear what you say. Yeah. We're currently calling her Tuppence. Yeah. That's been the that's yeah. been the steady yeah. <laughs> steady name since <laughs> since she was like a tiny grain of salt. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. So after Wendy Honora gave birth to Pauline Yvonne in 1938. Now, Pauline in her family household is called Yvonne by everyone. I don't know why. Yeah. She's called like a million different things, but her okay. mom called her Yvonne. I don't know why. Hmm. In 1949, Honora gave birth to another girl named Rosemary. And Rosemary had Down syndrome, which at that point in time, in that place, they described as being a Mongolian imbecile, which is like the grossest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. That's what's on official documents. Oh, my goodness. You, a hospital said that? I hate that. Ugh. Um, and she stayed at home with the family for three years before she was placed in Templeton, which is a Christchurch institution. Okay. And then never heard from again. Okay. I've heard of, of people doing that. Yeah. So they just put her away in the home at three and mm-hmm. then there's no talk of visiting or anything. She's Oh, that's so sad. And you know it's really rough sad. shit happened there. Oh, that girl. you know it did. I know. I know. I'm going to try and look into her a little little bit. It is a really, that is a really cute name, actually. Yeah, I'll I'll see if I can find any follow up on her for next week because, like, not spoiler alert, but Pauline is still alive. Oh. Um, Juliet uh, passed just two months ago. So Juliet just died. Uh, So Rosemary, I mean, there's a chance she's not dead. I have no idea. So we'll see what we can find out. Anyway. Pauline herself also grew up as a sickly child. At just five years old, she developed osteomyelitis, which is a painful bone infection. It's like in the marrow of your bone. So it's kind of notoriously difficult to get rid of. She had it in her right leg, like in the front of her right shin. Now today, this kind of thing can be treated with like a strict course of strong antibiotics. So you get IV antibiotics for like a month or so. And now that can pretty much knock it out of you. But remember, this was 1943. And though there certainly were antibiotics back then, they were not nearly as sophisticated as the stuff we have right now. And so at the time, the standard treatment for osteomyelitis in the long bone of a child was a course of surgeries to remove infected tissue and bone to clear out the infection. So they would just keep going in and cleaning out. Okay. And then that resulted in bone loss in the front of her leg for her, obviously. Mm -hmm. And this is super painful. It's not easy to go through. No, that doesn't sound great. And she's a little kid. So this is like very, very traumatic. And it would have been a time where she was in a hospital, not with her family, for nine months. Ooh. Yeah, for a five-year-old, that's intense. That's so sad. Yeah. So two years later, after the first nine-month hospitalization, 
At the age of seven, Pauline was forced to undergo another painful operation to again clean out the infection from her leg. Pauline's illness left her with a permanent, though not crippling, handicap. This is the quotation. I I think what that means is she could walk fine, but she was, like, she wasn't going to be an athlete. Okay. But she, like, could get around. So she wasn't technically, like, handicapped to the point where she couldn't do things. Mm. Pauline had chronic recurring pain in her leg, though, obviously, throughout her childhood and youth. And it should be noted that to deal with this, she did take pain-killing medication frequently, which was probably um, something that would change your personality a little bit. Mm-hmm. It was probably opiate-based. So I can imagine she was probably out of it sometimes. When Pauline was eight years old, her family moved to um, like a bigger house at 31 Gloucester Street, which was a boarding house. So they bought this bigger house that was a business also. And her mother managed the boarding house and they lived in a small apartment in the front and they would have a bunch of boarders. Okay. Um, which would mean they would also like make food for them and stuff. By this time, her father was the manager of Dennis Brothers Fish Shop. And though they weren't wealthy, the Parkers were getting on fine. They had two incomes. They had a place to live. Everybody was taken care of. By all accounts, they're fine, right? Pauline was even able to be sent to the prestigious and very buttoned-up Christ Church School for Girls. Nice. Which when I first read the title, I was like, that's just the school for girls. But it was a fancy one. They had to wear gloves and hats all the time and stuff. Okay, I like it. Yeah, they were like very buttoned up and proper. And like when I watched a documentary about this case that I didn't know existed until yesterday, um, (laughs) they interviewed other um, girls that went to this school and they were talking about how like how if you went there, that was you would have a career. That was the school where you could get a job afterwards. You wanted a spot in the school. So... It was like kind of a big deal. While she was there, Pauline insisted on being called Paul. Nice. You know, she had shorter hair than most of the girls. Like, call me Paul. Like, all right, Paul. Her classmates remember her as dark and broody, which um, (laughs) this is one picture that I'll put in our photo suite that's everywhere, and it's like a class of girls all standing on risers for their class picture. You know, outside smiling. One girl looking down at the ground, scowl on her face. That's Pauline. Wait, I'm I'm looking at it It's now. wild. Yes. Look at her. Just like, everybody else. I would have been her friend. Mm. Been like, why are you so broody, Paul? And you would have, you would have <laughs> had a bad time. <laughs> uh, her classmates also say, oh, like several of them say, she, they always thought she was sad. Yeah, they she They were like, she sad. just looks sad all the time. We just always thought she was sad. But she was also a voracious reader, quiet and sometimes abrasive. She didn't have a lot of friends, which with that list of qualities at that age is not a super big surprise. So Mm -hmm. this school, you get into it like middle school age. I would say those kids look like they're about 10 or 11 in that picture. If this was the description of like a guy, everyone would be in love. I'm like, so my type. You're so sensitive (laughs) and you were sick as a kid. Tell me more. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. He's the only one that looks sad. I love him. Dark and broody. Oh, my God. He's like a vampire or something. Mm, I know. Ugh. I was just thinking Edward Cullen. Yeah, very Edward Cullen. <laughs> like a like a lady Edward Cullen. Yeah. But without all the like sexy sparkles. Right. So anyway, the other part of this that bears noting is that she couldn't participate in physical activities. So she had to sit out of gym. Okay. And that is how she met Juliet. Okay. So Juliet Hume uh, was had quite a different upbringing. 
but there are elements that were the same. Juliet was raised very wealthy. Mm. She was born in London on October 28th, 1938 to Hilda and Henry Hume. Hilda's also a fun name. Her father, Henry Rainsford Hume, was a famed British nuclear scientist. He was like a nuclear physicist who worked on uh, bombs and stuff. And okay. it was wild. So he was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And her mother, Hilda, was a marriage counselor and a prominent socialite. Cool. Yeah, she's referred to as like very glamorous and the lady of the house. She was like the rich lady that loved being a rich lady. I love that for her. Yeah. <laughs> love that journey for you. Well, why not? As a baby, Juliet lived in London during a terrifying series of dramatic airstrikes. So like the when London was like airbombed all over the place during World War II, she was there for that. And it was subsequently the cause of a diagnosis for something they called bomb shock in her, Ooh. which is, is PTSD. Okay. They just don't call it shell shock because she wasn't a soldier. Mm-hmm. But she was like a toddler who lived through just constant bombing. So that's going to mess up your nervous system a little bit. You're, you're not going to react to things very well. That's your formative, right? like, homeostasis. Juliet was also a sickly child who was frequently sent away for long periods of time, quote, for the good of her health. <laughs> oh, no, you've got to go to the Bahamas for a few months for the good of your health. It was one of those things. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She I'll had... take you to the beach and get some fresh air. Yes, you must go to a warmer climate, but we're not coming, darling. Mummy has a social engagement. <laughs> I have marriages to fix. I have marriages to fix and also husbands to steal. Goodbye. <laughs> More on that later. So yeah, Juliet had several bouts with severe pneumonia, bronchitis, and tuberculosis. So back then when you had a respiratory illness, it was thought that warm weather was better for all of them. So she was sent to live in the Bahamas and South Africa for big stretches of time because it was thought that warmer weather would, you know, save her life or something. By the time she was 11, Juliet had spent a total of four years of her life away from her mother and father. If you tally it up, it added to four years. Yeah. That's so long. Yeah. Because when she was sent away, they didn't go with her. Mm -hmm. They just sent her off. I get the idea that these people, the Humes, were very involved in themselves. Okay. And they, like, their children were fine when they were there, but they didn't feel the need to be as involved as you or I would. As a result of this, Juliet was, like, had a severe fear of abandonment, obviously, and tended to act in a way that would attract attention. So if you have that kind of weird attachment disorder, that's what you're going to do. She was a commanding presence who got whatever she wanted when she wanted, especially at home. Little sick baby gets everything she wants. But her parents did worry about her behavior. They say later, like, she was sort of difficult at home. Did have a tantrum on occasion, wanted to have her way. In October of 1948, Professor Hume was appointed as rector of Canterbury University College in New Zealand. Fancy. Very fancy. Yes. And the Humes, uh, by this time, also have a young son named Jonathan. Poor Jonathan. Nobody talks about him ever at all. He was there, too. We don't know what he was doing. I mean, maybe it's for the best. It probably is. He's probably the only one that got out of this kind of okay. Yeah. He was just like, I'm fine. Do live in my life. And I went to boarding school or something. So, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. But they, um, so when they moved to New Zealand, they're all moved to a place called Islam Homestead. Now, this place is owned by Canterbury College. And so if you're the head of the college, you get Mm -hmm. to live there. Sweet perk. Because it's a giant, beautiful mansion owned by the university out on like this large plot of land. To give you an idea of what it is like, it's still there. You can look it up. It's spelled I-L-A-M Homestead. And it's a wedding venue now. 
Yeah, go ahead. Look it up. It's real pretty. And it's used in the movie Heavenly Creatures. So every venue you see in Heavenly Creatures is real. That's where they were. Oh, it is pretty. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember this in the movie. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll ring bells. They used Victoria Park where the murder happened, like right on the spot. They used all of the exact stuff. And the way that the girls look in that movie too is 100% accurate down to like placement of haircuts and stuff. They were stickler for that. So they're living in this big, beautiful mansion, right? Juliet begins a Christchurch school for girls as well, because of course, where else would she go but the fancy school? Mm-hmm. She started when she was 13, and the minute she walked in the door, she was something of a celebrity because she was the daughter of a famed British scientist, and she lived in the mansion on the hill, which this is already cool, right? Right. But also, all of these girls are like country girls. They live in this small town where everybody stays there and, you know, lives their life and then has their kids, and their kids stay there too. They have never met someone well-traveled. And Julia's been all over the place. So they're like, oh my God, what are you? Yes, tell us more. Yes. Another fun fact at the time was that like being British was a big deal. You wanted to be British if you lived in that area. That was like the fancy people were British. Okay. Mostly because a lot of the film stars and stuff they saw, Mm. that's how they spoke. All right. So they're like, oh my God, British, traveled, rich. I want to know about it. What (laughs) are you? She had a posh British accent and she had this, um, she was tall and slender and also had like a stylish haircut. She has like Mm -hmm. this cute little bob, which is a little bit different than the other girls. She also would tell them all like big grand stories and she would do things like interrupt her teachers in class to correct them. Like in, this is in the movie too, like in a French class, if a teacher was saying something and she knew it wasn't correct because she had already taken French. She'd be like, that's wrong. You should use this verb. I like it. Now, this is the school <laughs> where, like, if you get caught with your glove hanging out of your pocket, you get in trouble. Right. But she was allowed to do that. hmm The balls on this girl. I know. And Juliet would also do asinine things to test this, like, argue that the moon was actually black. We talk about, like, the moon in science class. She'd be like, actually, the moon is black. I know this because I'm well-traveled. And her teachers would be like, oh, you're rich. You're probably right. I don't want to argue with you. Is it black or is it, like, gray? Yeah, it's not black. It's not black. I mean, I've never been. I've never been either, but I imagine the pictures are correct. (laughs) So her teachers tolerated this behavior simply because she was a very influential man's daughter. A classmate remembers Juliet being so favored by her teachers that if any of the kids in class forgot to do their homework, they would tell Juliet to say she forgot to do her homework Mm -hmm. because then the teachers would be like, well, you're all excused. We didn't need that anyway. Oh, there you go. I know. They were like, we did kind of work the system when it came to her. Okay, okay. Yeah. Despite being an international gal of mystery, Juliet didn't really bond with the other girls very well. Like, they would use her for homework excuses, and they liked her stories, but they didn't really bond with her. Mm. She was also, like, kind of snobby. She would walk by a group of girls and be like, oh, aren't you also very mid-Victorian? And then walk away. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'd be like, fuck that girl. Tell me about the Bahamas, but we're not friends. So I know, but you would just feel, no, you wouldn't even say that. You'd just be like, you're right. I'm shit. (laughs) (laughs) They all go home and like cut off their hair and stuff. Oh God. So she wasn't nice about her like social standing at all. She was kind of a pain in the neck. Uh, and by the way, the moon's actual color is an off-white brown gray. Not so it's black. A lot. It's white, brown, and gray. Oh. 
awful. Yeah, there you go. Thank you for that. Now we know. Yeah. <laughs> so when she wasn't telling like crazy stories, she was really just pretty much sitting alone and reading or writing because people could not tolerate her for more than they had to. Okay. Now, because of her extensive illnesses, Juliet's lungs were pretty compromised and most physical activity was also out of the question for mm. her. It is important to remember that there is no way in hell she could have run up a hill. Right. She can't do that. Just bank that in your brain. And so we arrive at Phys Ed, where Juliet and Pauline are the only two girls sitting off to the side together, comparing stories of their childhood illnesses that landed them in the state. I know they're sitting like, oh, I was away from my family. I'm missing a bone in my leg. I had tuberculosis. <laughs> Sounds like a real fun time. Um, but this also like kind of trauma bonds you to a person. Oh, yeah, for you sure. You know, like it me, it's like, so you fast. Get me. Exactly. And they're both in a mental state where they're going to overshare immediately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine the effects that had. And it formed a bond that no other child in the class could understand because they both had these experiences that nobody got, but they got each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Soon after they met, the girls began to ignore every other girl at school. And this is immediate. As soon as they were friends, it was like, it's just us. All of you are shit. Goodbye. Right. Which they, is kind of how they were feeling anyway. Yeah. But so, then they found like a friend to be like, well, now we got each other. Super intense about. Yeah. Um. So they sat together. They talked constantly or wrote notebooks. Pauline would start spending all of her weekends at Island with Juliet. Um, and who wouldn't? You could go sleep at a mansion for the weekend instead yeah. of your house full of boarders. Yeah, you're going to do I that. that. Mm-hmm. And she would like kind of pretend she was a member of the Hume family. Mm. She'd be like, I'm part of this family. Yeah. And um, Juliet's like socialite mom, Hilda, would be like, you're like my little foster daughter. Oh, I'll brush your hair and take care of you and buy you presents. I love it. Yeah, I mean, like, that does sound nice, but she's also, like, feeding this weird situation where this girl is not her child. She does have a family. Yeah. So you're not giving any credence to that at all. But Pauline loved pretending she was, like, rich and famous. Who wouldn't? Outwardly, it was just a close friendship. And this is not uncommon with young girls. Girls Mm -hmm. have intense friendships, and we'll talk about that more next week. But they they can be very intense and still okay. Mm Mm-hmm. To an observer, the events of their friendship occurred like this. So if you were somebody in their family that was just watching it, Pauline began to spend as much time as possible at Ilem. The girls slowly cut the rest of the world out, including family. So they stopped talking to their family too. They preferred to spend hours and hours together writing and pretending. They would just write stories and like novels constantly. And they were making things up. Um, and they would like run out into the fields and skinny dip. Not abnormal. They also had pet names for each other. Pauline was Gina and Juliet was Deborah. Yeah, this isn't super weird either. Deborah would absolutely be Juliet's name. (laughs) I know. It's so complicated. (laughs) This isn't really weird. A lot of girls have nicknames. Yeah. I mean, those are weird nicknames. (laughs) But I can't judge. I mean, maybe it was the nicknames of the time. Maybe. Maybe like everyone is Deborah to someone. The girls were also very physically close. They shared a bed, they held hands, they were like snuggly, but that's also to me, that's like girls. They just are. I mean, I definitely had friends that I would like hold hands with or like Mm -hmm. sit close to or like snuggle with. That Mm -hmm. wasn't like a weird thing. When Pauline wasn't at Ilum, however, though, Juliet would just like lay in her bed depressed and not come out of her room. Which also feels normal when you're that close to Yeah, (laughs) it's a little bit intense because she's at home. Right. And she won't, like, come out of bed. Yeah. 
Pauline would refuse to talk to her family or eat for long stretches of time oh. when she was unable to, like, mm-hmm. go to Juliet's house. They're like, you can't go this weekend. She, like, wouldn't eat or come out of her room or talk to anybody. That's a, that's a little intense. Yeah, that's rough. On May 15th, 1953, Juliet was hospitalized for a recurrence of her tuberculosis, and she was sent to a sanitarium. During her absence, the girls wrote daily letters, and they decided to start writing as characters in their stories and their alter egos. So it's not like, dear Julia, I hope you're feeling well. It's like, dear Deborah, this weekend, this one had a baby and I feel, and it's like this long, it's just like them living in this like story life. Which is probably more fun. It's kind of fun. It sounds fun to me. And a lot of people play pretend. Mm -hmm. Pauline also refused to attend school in Juliet's absence. So she was like, she's not going to school. I'm not going to school. I'm just going to lay here in my bed and you can't make me. These teenagers make me so mad. I know. Her mom had to take her to the doctor because she was like rapidly losing weight and she thought she was sick and she wouldn't get out of bed and she couldn't go to school. It was like really intense. And after this point, like neither one of them ever went back to school. Okay. Yeah. Which isolates them even further. Obviously, they have no other girls anywhere now. When Juliet returned home... Um, they were t- their friendship was like even crazier because they had visited. She had, they had gone. This is what blows my mind too. Pauline visited her in the like sanitarium where she's recovering from tuberculosis a bunch of times. Aren't you not supposed to visit them because they're super infectious? Why are you there? Right. TB is not hard to catch. I know. And I guess they would know that at that point. Right? Yeah. And she's also compromised. She's like a kid that's that had like a bunch of surgical issues and stuff. Like I would never be taking my kid to get exposed to TB all the time. Risks be damned. Well, I mean, I think that speaks to the intensity of the demand. I think she probably was like, I will, then I won't eat. Yeah. You won't take me to see my friend. I'll just kill myself in my room slowly. Yeah. So I'll die either way. You tell me how. Yeah. You tell me which way you would like. Yeah. So obviously when Juliet gets home, their friendship is even stronger. And at times it really seemed as if they were just like two halves of one person. At this time, Pauline's mother became pretty concerned that their relationship had turned, quote, unhealthy, a.k.a. they were too gay. Oh. Yeah. They were taking baths together and stuff, and they just did not like this. So, Honora Parker called Mr. Hume, Juliet's father, and said, you got to come to my house and talk about our girls, like, being way too fucking gay. And he was... And he was like, I don't know what you mean. I'll be over in a little while. We're British. We're so British. It's fine. (laughs) we're all gay he's going through a spell right now I'm very busy what's so bad about being cheerful (laughs) would you like me to send her to South Africa I hear they're fine there that's how I imagine this going so he goes to the Parker household and has this sit down with um, Pauline's mother and Mr. Hume is like I'm not really that worried whatever they just yeah, really grow out of it. <laughs> exactly. We'll send them off to the Bahamas. <laughs> but um, he says, if you're really worried, if you feel really concerned, I have a colleague who is a doctor and you can send Pauline to this doctor who is a psychiatrist mm-hmm. and, she, and, um, and he will probably be able to cure her right. of her therapy. homosexuality. <laughs> <laughs> we can just cure her of her gayness and then everything will be fine. Because at that time, it was seen as just that, a disease, right? Right, mm-hmm. Leslie, do you know Do you know anything about this? I, I do. Do you? I do. Can you maybe bit. shed a little light on that? Because it is going to come back to, into play like 10 more times. Sure, sure. Okay, great. Thank okay. you. 
So um, here's a little history on um, homosexuality okay. as an illness. Give it to me. 70 Not years Not the illness. <laughs> I don't care about I'm homosexuality. Inject you. I think you get it from the uh, COVID-19 um, vaccine. I had four of those. I'm so gay now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> so 70 years ago, the American Psychiatric Association, or APA, classified homosexuality as a mental disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness, or DSM. Wow, you said the whole thing. I did. Good job. Well, because other people might not know. They'd be like, what the fuck this is the DSM? Explain it, Leslie. So the first DSM, created in 1952, established a hierarchy of sexual deviances. In order to create a hierarchy, they first had to establish a sexual norm, this being heterosexuality. The APA were really trying to differentiate between natural or healthy behavior from unnatural or unhealthy behavior. The APA believed that the non-procreative sex was unnatural because it could not result in a child. So you can't have a child. You're unnatural. It's just, it's not right. It's, it's, it ain't right. <laughs> Thank God you're pregnant, Leslie. <laughs> no. <laughs> I had too many COVID shots, yeah. <laughs> but I already had my babies, so we're all good. Yes. And as we know, we still have this argument today. So this is like oh, yeah, still there are ongoing. Definitely people yeah. who need to get their shit together. But. And it's usually in like a religious context. Oh, so that's sure. really where they got this from. Like it's, you know, in, Be fruitful in and the multiply. Bible, it says, yeah, that we need to. Yeah, exactly what you just said. So if that's like, if being homosexual in the Bible is a sin or if their view or if like your religious affiliation affiliation views it as a sin, which at that point most of them did, yeah. I guess, then now they're trying to make it more of like a mental disorder. Yeah. So by doing this, the APA effectively made homosexuality unnatural and unhealthy, putting it in line with pedophilia, fetishisms, yep. um, exhibitionism, voyeurism, sadism, masochism, yes, masochism, and other sexual deviations like having sex with objects. So it's all the same. Which people who are extremely religiously inclined or very conservative still say the same things. They Mm -hmm. still qualify it as a paraphilia, which it isn't. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems, though there were many, with classifying homosexuality as a mental illness was the APA had not even defined what constitutes as having a mental illness. And they wouldn't until the 70s. So there wasn't just like a hard line of like, this is what a mental illness and this is why this falls in this line. So a little um, history here. The APA was founded in 1844 by 13 superintendents of U.S. institutions for people with mental illnesses. The organization ballooned in membership after the end of World War II, likely due to the GI Bill allowing thousands of young, mostly white, men to attend college. Given that the majority of U.S. universities did not admit women into their ranks until the mid-20th century, the APA was largely a male-dominated organization. In the 1950s and 60s, many therapists were providing aversion therapy to homosexual men, this typically involved showing patients pictures of naked men while giving them electric shocks oh, God. or drugs to make them vomit. Ugh. And once they could no longer bear it, showing them pictures of naked women or sending them out on a date, quote, date, 
with a uh, young nurse. Uh, so like just somebody that worked there, they're like, we'll just send you out. Like, so this will just be like a practice. That date. poor nurse. I know. And how as many you, like miserable hand jobs do you think she had to give? So many. Yeah, but and probably miserable for them too. Oh, for they were like, involved. We don't want this. That's what I'm saying. They're both like, this is terrible. <laughs> okay. <sighs> and as you could have guessed, these methods proved very effective, and we no longer have gays running amok. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone just gives sad hand jobs and calls it a day. Yeah. No, it obviously did not work. Then in the 1960s, alongside a growing civil rights, women's rights, and gay rights movement across the U.S., a campaign to remove the homosexuality diagnosis from the DSM began. The declassification effort was just one part of the movement for equality and acceptance. After years of campaigning outside, activists decided that they needed to go to the APA conferences to really be seen and heard. And these conferences were where practitioners attended panels and discussions of psychiatry and uh, psychology. So, and these were people like from all over the um, country, but then all over the world too, like some other people from other countries as well. Unfortunately, this did not go in their favor the first time as members of the APA and those attending were calling out protesters as maniacal and schizophrenic. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, so they were just like, see, they are ill. Look at them yelling at us. They disagree. They're crazy. <laughs> yes. So activists took a beat and they tried to figure out. <laughs> I got to breathe for a minute. Breathe. This is wild. Yeah. <laughs> <gasps> they, uh, they wanted to figure out what might be a better way to appeal to the APA mm-hmm. and really be heard. They decided that they needed to appeal to one of the organization's members, you know, get on the inside. Yeah, find yourself a board member. Got it. Makes sense. And they luckily, and luckily they were able to. In 1972, at the first conference that actually featured a panel discussion on homosexuality led by an LGBTQ plus people, a gay practitioner, John Fryer, testified on behalf of the declassification campaign, which all of this sounds great until you hear how he testified. Oh, no. So obviously this is a big deal. John Fryer is a well-respected psychiatrist who was not openly, who was, he at that time was not openly identifying as gay to his okay. peers, but he was now going to. Okay. And, you know, so here he was, he was about to get on stage and show his peers that, yes, he's gay, but he's also a very competent psychiatrist who does not have to, that who does not have a mental illness. Right. Like, you trust me. You right, know right. I do good I'm work. I'm gay, and look at me doing all this great stuff. Yeah. Gay's not bad. Nobody makes that And they, of course, would be like, oh, my God, no, you're super sane, and we will declassify homosexuality as a mental illness immediately. What were we thinking? <sighs> it was so easy. But for some reason, John Fryer did not go on stage as himself. Oh, no. Given the risk involved with openly identifying as a gay psychiatrist, he decided to present himself as Dr. Henry Anonymous and disguised his identity by wearing this freaking terrifying rubber face mask and using a microphone with a voice distorter. Oh, no. Where do I find this picture? And also, he sounds like he looks like a serial killer. Yes. You couldn't be less sane than the guy doing that. That's unacceptable. Yeah. Um, we'll try to Google Dr. What's Henry Anonymous John, oh, no. and John Fryer. Dr. Henry Anonymous. This is terrible. And then put in his real name, John Oh, Fryer. no. It comes up real oh, fast. Okay. Don't Does worry. It? Yeah. Do you see the picture yet? Oh, no. It's awful, isn't it? Oh, no. You guys, he looks like Leatherface. Yes, it's, that's exactly. It's a humanoid mask. 
Yeah. He would have been better off if he wore like a fucking clown suit than that. Yeah, that's it's insane. Awful. It's awful. <gasps> uh, unfortunately, it's awful. It just sounds so scary. So, yeah. So this picture of him on stage is very disturbing to me. And I'm sure the voice distortion only made it way creepier. And um, the point of this panel was to prove that being gay doesn't make you mentally ill. And I don't know that Mm-mm. that's what they proved. I feel like. I just feel like it was all a wrong move. And I do understand why he wanted to like hide his identity. I totally get it. You know, for like this initially being like the first conversation they were going to have. Uh, um, so boy. this testimony did not convince the APA to declassify. Oh, they no? all took a boat and they were like, we think there might be some weird shit. Yeah. So, however, the initial attempt to testify on the APA conference panels continued. So, even though this was like a weird first start, it was still yeah. it was still like a big deal, and it can it allowed them to continue to have like regular panels and allowed them to be able to come in and and continue to talk about this. Yeah, these articles are all like pretty positive about this they, guy. So people they like are. him. It was a positive thing, but just it did just did it real weird. It was just real weird. And I think it like kind of turned some people off. He would have been better off with a bag on his head. Yes. He I looks agree. crazy. I agree. Oh, yeah. God. So um, and in 1973, so this was only a year later, activists succeeded in their efforts. The declassification movement made heavy use of the fact that until this time, the members had not really defined what mental illness was only asserted that they existed and had a distinct etiology. etiology. Yeah, you're right. You got it. Though the complexity of the brain prevented scientists to really nail it down. So they were like, okay, there's just a lot going on. So complicated. And we don't have time. Activists also testified that they were productive members of society by demonstrating that they could find gainful employment, maintain relationships, and assimilate into heteronormative culture proving that there was nothing abnormal and nothing impairing about homosexuality. So even them, like, they are also being like, we can we can define what mental illness is. And yeah. we don't, like, mental illness should be like, if we couldn't find gainful employment, if we can't be part of society. Yeah, and that's a very ways. good point. Yeah. They're um, doing fine. Yeah, we can, we're just normal people. We just, yeah. Like something else. And your definition of mental illness um, is not fitting us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all the members of the APA were asked to vote and the majority voted to declassify homosexuality as a mental illness. And again, this was in 1973. That's so late. (laughs) I know. The the APA then compromised. So it still wasn't great, though. Mm. Removing, um, they compromised by removing homosexuality from the DSM, but replacing it in effect with sexual orientation disturbance for people in conflict with their sexual orientation. So not until 1987 did homosexuality completely fall out of the DSM. But for a lot of activists for this, they felt like the damage, especially just even in the 60s, had already been done. And which is why we still have conversations today about it possibly being a mental illness or like how it's wrong or a disturbance or like they're still figuring it out. They're struggling. They don't know. And like that's why they're just like the... Like, it took way too long for them to remove this out of these books. And now, like, that vernacular is out there. God, that's so crazy. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Well, thank you for that. And um, I would love to put a pin in Dr. Henry Anonymous and do, like, a patron piece on him. Okay. Because I think there's video. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah. He has like a whole big thing. But that and means we can yeah. hear it. Let's. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Maybe we need to talk about that together. So anyway, because Mrs. Parker takes Pauline to a doctor that practices exactly the kind of things you're talking about, he recommends at first, like she doesn't see him more than once or so. He says, you know, keep them separate. They just can't see each other. It's them being together, right? Just right. like, don't be with men if you're a gay man. And they try that, but it does not work. Because as we can recall, the girls like don't deal with separation well and they don't want them to die. Yeah. Right? So they're hysterically demanding to spend more time together. But during this time, the Humes also announce that they are divorcing. Ooh. Yeah. So this is a big deal. And what people don't know is that behind the scenes, Professor Hume was also asked to resign from the college by his colleagues. Oh, boy. Um, because one, his wife, who worked for the marriage council, was having an affair. Oh, Bad look. Yeah. And two, he did not align with the values at his college. There's not, it doesn't, it's not pertinent to anything we're talking about, but nobody liked them there, basically. Oh. They were not popular, any of them. <laughs> they sound like such wonderful people. I know, right? And so the college was like, you should go. So they say, you know what? We're going to cut our losses. And Dr. Hume says, I'm going to, I'm moving quickly. I'm moving back to England. Okay. And Mrs. Hume is going to stay in Christchurch because she um, has a boyfriend. Right. She's got she's got roots there. Yeah. Well, again, <laughs> we'll explain more of this relationship next week because it fits into the fantasy aspect, which is what we're going to talk about next okay. week. But he also says, Doc, uh, Dr. Hume, it's professor and doctor in some places. I'm sure he has a doctor. Yeah. It's just not always listed like that. Mm -hmm. um, says like, well, I'm going to go back to England. And Juliet, you're coming with me but I'm dropping you off in South Africa for the good of your health. Oof. He had like, um, in some sources it says it's his brother. In some sources it says it's a sister. It's a sibling that lived in South Africa and he was just going to pass this girl off to them. Nobody, no, the girls do not like this at all. No, this sounds... It sounds yeah. awful, obviously, but for both of them. So they make this plan together. The girls, they say, okay, well... Pauline's just going to come to South Africa. So Juliet and Pauline will move together and live with this sibling. Except no, no adult was in on that plan, obviously. Yeah. Well, there was one adult that seemed to be a little more amenable to this idea than others. It is indicated in some portions of Pauline's diary, which we will go over next week, that Dr. Hume may have indicated that, yes, he would take Pauline to go to South Africa with Julia and it would be fine with him if it were fine with Pauline's mother, which um, it of course would never have been. Nobody's mother is just going to let them run away to South Africa. <laughs> but we will explore that part of the story more when we get into the diary entry next week. So moving forward, the girls are at a standstill at this point and they see that they can't be together right? Because Juliet is going to be moving away. And the only thing standing in the way of Pauline coming with her, in their opinion, is Pauline's mother. And so, desperate to get what they want, we find ourselves back at the day in question. Because clearly, desperate times call for desperate measures. And the girls had done something well 
desperate. So we're back at the scene where we started the story, right? The girls have been taken in and apprehended. This horrible murder has occurred. And it's just starting to trickle into people's, like the girls and their families' minds that this is not an accident. This this was a murder because the police have found, um, they've talked to the medical examiner at this point and they have a little more information than like right in the beginning. Okay. So at this point, Pauline and Juliet's world just start rapidly crashing down because they do not hold up under pressure, obviously. They're both kids. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really plan this super well. I don't know if uh, <laughs> if we noticed that, but they definitely didn't. So the girls are questioned. And at first they stick to their story. So they're split up at this point and questioned individually. And at first they're like, no, this is what happened. She fell and then barrel rolled down a path. And then we screamed and tried to carry her. And then it all was bad. Sounds right. Yeah, sounds accurate, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. But then with a little encouragement, the facts began to change. Now, first, Juliet was um, encouraged by dad number two, her mom's boyfriend. For whatever reason, they keep putting her in a room alone with him, and he's the one that has to talk to her. And I wish I could tell you why, but I can't really. Weird. I know, it's very weird. We'll explore this relationship more next week when we get more into, like, what actually happens in there. Okay. But even then, you're still going to be like, why would you, why would he be the one to talk to her? It was very strange. But he did several times, and actually, it did work. Okay. It did end up working because he stressed the fact that, like, you know, if you tell the truth... You're going to be in less trouble. Like, you have to tell the truth. Right. Well, maybe it was, like, because he wasn't really a parent. So yeah. maybe it was more comfortable. Yeah. Maybe they thought it'd be more comfortable. Could be. Yeah, possible. Like, confess to him. He's not. Yeah. I mean, we're never going to get a good answer to that one. But that, mm-hmm. that, that it is what it is. So anyway. <laughs> I'm just the cool guy. I'm just your cool other dad. Yeah. We're in a three-way, your mom, dad, and I. Yeah. Except for your dad's not involved. I'm just like more like a friend, man. What up? Yes. Tell me your murder. Let's talk. So eventually, Juliet changes her story, and she claims that something did happen. There was like, obviously, she didn't fall down and barrel roll away. But I know she what. But um, Juliet didn't see what happened because she had run ahead to look for some pink stones. Yeah. So here's her first version of the events. After she finds out that everyone knows it's a murder, she talks to the cops again. And here's what she tells them this time. Okay. Mrs. Reaper, Pauline, and I left to go to Victoria Park. We walked to the square. We waited for a bus, which we went to the hill's terminus. I do not know at what time the bus left the square. When we arrived at the... Takehi, I guess. We left the bus and walked to Victoria Park by way of the rough metal road. When we arrived at the park, we entered the tea rooms and Mrs. Reaper had a cup of tea. Pauline and I had soft drinks and some cakes and scones. Afterwards, we all walked down the track on the side of the hill where the plantation is. It was decided before we left Mrs. Reaper's home that we intended to walk down this track. I don't know who suggested it first. It was not my suggestion. obviously not and and they're all like sugared up at this point I know they had flat soda and scones we went down the track for quite a long way I found a small pink stone oh god we were all walking together I picked it up and talked about it I still have it okay okay we went down for quite a long way 
Colleen and I left Mrs. Reaper on the track for about three minutes and went further down. It may have been a shorter time. We went just out of her sight. She did not think she wanted to go on, and we thought we would like to go to the end if she didn't mind. We decided to come back, and we rejoined Mrs. Reaper. We all three of us walked up the track. I was in front nearly all the way. Now, okay, she was in front running ahead of everyone, the girl who um, has had so many lung disorders that she can't run. Right. Okay. I dropped behind once, but caught up again and got ahead once more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I found that we were getting near the place where I had found the pink stone. I told the others that I would go to the place where I had found the stone. I went on ahead and left them behind. I searched for her set a setting from which I thought the stone might have come. So I'm guessing this pink stone is like a gem. It's not like a pebble. It's like it fell. She said a, she's looking for a setting. Yeah. So it must have been like something that fell out of a... Like a ring. Yeah, or, or a brooch or something. Or yeah, in the movie, brooch. it's a brooch. Okay. But it's like shiny and faceted is okay. what she's saying. Um, and I also am going to take this moment to remind everyone that Mrs. Reaper... Colleen's mother is 45 and healthy. Mm -hmm. She is not old and infirm and has a hard time walking or anything. Right. She's fine. The girls are just like 80-year-old women health-wise. Yeah, and they're like, <laughs> we ran ahead and she just couldn't do it. That's yeah. a load of shit because neither one of them could do gym class. Right. And this woman is running a boarding house. Yeah. That feels crazy to me. Anyway. I spent some minutes looking for this. So she's looking for whatever the, the stone fell out of, the ring, the brooch, the bracelet, whatever. While I was looking around in this spot, I heard a voice call out. I cannot say whether it was Pauline's voice or her mother's. I did not return immediately. I called out and told them I would come soon or something to that effect. There's like a murder going on and they just called out like, hey. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Hey, girl. Hey, guess what? <laughs> Stuff's happening. I had to go a lot back along the track to reach Pauline and her mother. I have no idea of the distance, but I came upon both of them. I found Mrs. Reaper lying on the ground. So the, the calling out, mm -hmm. that was her being like beat about the head. Okay. Pauline was hysterical. There was blood all around Mrs. Reaper's head. I was shocked. I took her head in my lap. Mrs. Reaper did not speak to me. I think she was unconscious. She seemed to be to me. I think Pauline helped me. That was when I tried to nestle her head on my lap. Okay. Yeah. I do not remember seeing a stocking with a knot in it. I did not take any particular notice of a brick. I do not know how long we stayed with Mrs. Reaper. It might have been five minutes. It could have been any time. I asked Pauline what had happened. She said that her mother had slipped and banged her head against a stone. I believed her at that time. I felt that we had to get help. Pauline and I hurried up the path towards the tea kiosk. When we got there, we told the story between us as to what had happened. The story we told was that we had been together when Mrs. Reaper had fallen and had obtained her injuries when she had fallen on some stones. I knew when I said this that it was not true that I had been present when Mrs. Reaper had got her injuries. But I said I was there because the idea occurred to me that they may have quarreled and I thought that she probably had slipped. Okay. You know how when you argue and then you just fall and barrel roll through rocks? For sure. Right. I mean, okay. I'm very clumsy, so. Oh, same. Yes. 
<laughs> However, I thought that it would be better for Pauline if I said I was there and supported her story that Mrs. Reaper had obtained her injuries accidentally. Okay. We waited at the kiosk for my father to come and fetch us. He was summoned by telephone. He brought us home. That's the whole statement that Juliet gives. And she gives this first. Then the police go, all right, okay, maybe. I don't fully believe that, but like, let's talk to your uh, your cohort. Yeah. And and give the her... Pink stone. We have to talk to the pink stone. Yeah, right. <laughs> let's give her the same... Um, the same little kernel of information. So mm-hmm. basically it's like, we know she didn't fall down and die. We have this body here. And they speak to her father who is like, okay, I'm going to bring her back to you. And you can, you can tell, you can do whatever you need to do. Her mm-hmm. father is like destroyed. So the cops bring in Pauline. They tell Pauline, we know that this has happened. And they also say, Juliet says, this is what happened. Ooh. Right. Unfazed. Pauline, like, they say that they kind of notice a little shift, like, oh, in her. And then she says, I did it. I wish to confess to all of it. Okay. Then the police say, okay, well, will you write a statement? And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they were like, okay, will you tell us what happened? She goes, just ask me questions. And they were like, okay, we will ask you questions and record your answers. And you can tell us whatever you're going to tell us. Mm Mm-hmm. So then here is that interview. Okay. I am 16 years of age and an ex-pupil of the Christchurch Girls High School. I left school about March of this year after passing into Form 5S. I live with my parents at 31 Gloucester Street, Christchurch. I have been informed that I am suspected of murdering my mother today. I have been informed that I am not obliged to say anything and that if I do, it would be taken down in writing and used as evidence. I do not wish to tell you what happened. You ask me questions. Okay, girl. Right. Question. Who assaulted your mother? Answer. I did. Question. Why? Answer. If you don't mind, I won't answer that question. We do mind. Okay. Yeah, we do mind a lot. But at this point, they're like, let's just get to the next step. Okay. Question. When did you make up your mind to kill your mother? Answer. A few days ago. That's premeditation. Mm -hmm. Question, did you tell anyone you were going to do it? Answer, no. My friend did not know anything about it. She was out of sight at the time. She had gone on ahead. Answer, what did your mother say when you struck her? Answer, I would rather not answer that. I'm sure you wouldn't. You're grounded. Yeah. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) Can you stop it? Question, how often did you hit her? Answer, I don't know, but a great many times, I imagine. Now we're getting sassy. Question, what did you use? Answer, a half brick inside the foot of a stocking. I took them with me for that purpose. I had the brick in my shoulder bag. I wish to state that Juliet did not know of my intentions and she did not see me strike my mother. I took the chance to strike my mother when Juliet was away. I still do not wish to say why I killed my mother. Question, did you tell Juliet that you had killed your mother? Answer, she knew nothing about it. As far as I know, she believed what I told her, although she may have guessed what had happened, but I doubt it, as we were both so shaken that it probably did not occur to her. Ooh, that's yeah. a good response. Sure. Question, why did Juliet tell the same story as you to the lady at the tea kiosk? Answer, I think she simply copied what I said. 
She might have suspected what I had done and she would not have wished to believe it nor to have got me into trouble. As soon as I started to strike my mother, I regretted it, but I could not stop then. Then this is included in Senior Detective Brown's testimony, which is like where this is all coming from. He says, quote, we decided to take the girl Parker into custody. As we were leaving, I said, where did you get the brick? I had understood she said she got it at Ilem. So at some point in time, somebody asked her where the brick came from. And she said, you know, Ilem House. But Mrs. Hume, who had been present at the interview, said, no, she didn't get it here. So I guess for whatever reason, Juliet's mother is here for this interview. Again, it doesn't make sense the people they have in the rooms at certain times. Why Juliet's mother is here for this interview is beyond me. Or, I mean, but the way that you're stating this right now, it sounds like that was maybe they just asked the mom maybe. at a different time and they're just interjecting it in the yeah. it says, report. Yeah, it says who had been present this at the interview. just the report. Yeah, I guess. No, she didn't get it, get it here. The girl Parker said she took it from home. Dr. F.O. Bennett testified in court that Pauline Parker had the following to say to him concerning her feelings toward Juliet Hume. Um, Pauline, Juliet is not a friend. She is much closer. And Dr. Bennett asked, isn't that love? And Pauline said, I don't know. I care for her more than anyone else in the world. So that is Pauline's full statement too. We'll come back to Juliet again next week because there's a reason she has to give another statement. Okay. Um, I don't find the pink stone. <laughs> no, it does. It is. It's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. There is a pink stone involved, yeah, no, but it's I like a red herring. Yeah. But of course, like the story hits the newsstands and the first thing both the defense and the prosecution want to do is to prove that these two girls are lesbians, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're like, all right, well, how? what are we going to do next with this? And then they decide to do a search of the uh, the Reaper Parker household, Pauline's house. And I mentioned briefly earlier that they find her diary. Right. And it is at this time that they decide to go into that diary. Ooh. And then it becomes obvious that neither one of them are telling the truth, first of all. Mm. And second of all, there is so much more going on. Oh, boy. Right. But that is next week. Oh, man. Yes. So what we're going to do with it, the reason I'm pausing this now is because the whole account and everything leading up to it is also chronicled in Pauline's diary. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that sounds like it might be like 100 hours long. It's not. I've pared it down to like enough that we can just tell it and get like, I'm not reading the ones that are like, I did house cleaning today. It was boring. We, we don't <laughs> need that. So, but what I'll do next week is I will actually read Pauline's diary. I'll read okay. all the entries and you and I can pause to talk about it. And I will pause to fill in the events that happen in between entries so that it's clear for everybody what exactly is going on. But it paints the story very vividly and differently. And then after that, we'll get into the court case so you can have both sides in your head when you're seeing how the court presents it. Mm. Um, and as, as you guys know, because I stated it in the opening, they are both released after a certain point in time. They do not spend very long in jail. Right. So you'll have to see how that comes to pass next week. Oh, I'm so interested. Yes. Yeah. So come back next week. Mm -hmm. It's going to get super juicy. Okay. And uh, you know how much I love some like crazy fantasy moments. And this is like written 
I mean, they created like a whole intense world. So we're going to have some very dramatic readings next week. Wonderful. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll see if I can find one that we can read together. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> That'd I'm be down. really fun. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. All right. So that'll be great. That's next week, you guys. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really have a sign-off sign-off this week because it's a, you know, come back next time. So, all right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. We'll take you to the beach and get some fresh air. Yes, you must go to a warmer climate, but we're not coming, darling. Mummy has a social engagement. (laughs) I have marriages to fix. I have marriages to fix and also husbands to steal. Goodbye.